Chapter 13 of Esther Waters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Abraham. Esther Waters by George Moore. Chapter 13. When she arrived at Victoria, it was raining. She picked up her skirt, and as she stepped across a puddle, a wild and watery wind swept up the wet streets, catching her full in the face. She had left her box in the cloakroom, for she did not know if her father would have her at home. Her mother would tell her what she thought, but no one could say for certain what he would do. If she brought the box, he might fling it after her into the street. Better come without it, even if she had to go back through the wet to fetch it. At that moment, another gust drove the rain violently over her, forcing it through her boots. The sky was a tint of ashen grey and all the low brick buildings were veiled in vapour. The rough roadway was full of pools, and nothing was heard but the melancholy bell of the tram-car. She hesitated, not wanting to spend a penny unnecessarily, but remembering that a penny-wise is often a pound foolish, she called to the driver and got in. The car passed by the little brick street where the Saunders lived, and when Esther pushed the door open, she could see into the kitchen and hear the voices of the children. Mrs. Saunders was sweeping down the stairs, but at the sound of footsteps she ceased to bang the broom, and stooping till her head looked over the banisters, she cried, Who is it? Me, mother. What? You, Esther? Yes, mother. Mrs. Saunders hastened down, and leaning the broom against the wall, she took her daughter in her arms and kissed her. Well, this is nice to see you again after this long while, but you are looking a bit poorly, Esther. Then her face changed expression. What has happened? Have you lost your situation? Yes, mother. Oh, I am that sorry, for we thought that you were so happy there and liked your mistress above all those you had ever met with. Did you lose your temper and answer her back? There is often trying. I know that. And your own temper. You was never very sure of it. I have no fault to find with my mistress. She is the kindest in the world, none better. And my temper... It wasn't that, mother. My own darling, tell me. Esther paused. The children had ceased talking in the kitchen, and the front door was open. Come into the parlour. We can talk quietly there. When do you expect father home? Not for the best part of a couple of hours yet. Mrs. Saunders waited until Esther had closed the front door. Then they went into the parlour and sat down side by side on the little horsehair sofa placed against the wall facing the window. The anxiety in their hearts betrayed itself on their faces. I had to leave, mother. I am seven months gone. Oh, Esther, Esther, I cannot believe it. Yes, mother, it is quite true. Esther hurried through her story, and when her mother questioned her regarding details, she said, Oh, mother, what does it matter? I don't care to talk about it more than I can help. Tears had begun to roll down Mrs. Saunders's cheeks, and when she wiped them away with the corner of her apron, Esther heard a sob. Don't cry, mother, said Esther. I have been very wicked. I know. But God will do good to me. I always pray to him, just as you taught me to do, and I dare say I shall get through my troubles somehow. Your father will never let you stop here. He'll say, just as a fork, that there be too many mouths to feed as it is. I don't want him to keep me for nothing. I know well enough that if I did that, He'd put me outside quick enough, but I can pay my way, 
I earned good money while I was with the Barfields. And though she did tell me I must go, Mrs. Barfield, the saint they call her, and she is a saint if there ever was one, gave me four pounds to see me, as she said through my trouble. I've better than eleven pound. Don't cry, mother dear. Crying won't do no good, and I want you to help me. So long as the money holds out, I can get a lodging anywhere. But I'd like to be near you, and father might be glad to let me have the parlour and my food for ten or eleven shillings a week. I could afford as much as that, and he never was the man to turn good money away from his door. Do you think he will? I don't know, dearie. It's hard to say what he'll do. He's a hard man to live with. I've had a terrible time of it lately. And them babies, all is coming. Ah, we poor women have more than our right to bear with. Poor mother, said Esther, and taking her mother's hand in hers, she passed her arm around her and drew her closer, and kissed her. I know what he was. Is he any worse now? Well, I think he drinks more and is even rougher. It was only the other day that I was attending to his dinner. It was a nice piece of steak, and it looked so nice that I cut off a weeny piece to taste. He sees me do it, and he cries out, Now then, guts, what are you interfering with my dinner for? I says, I only cut off a tiny piece to taste. Well then, taste that, he says, and strikes me clean between the eyes. Ah, yes, lucky for you to be in service. You have forgot by now what we've to put up with here. You was always that soft with him, mother. He never touched me since I dashed the hot water in his face. Sometimes I thinks I can bear it no longer, Esther, and long to go and drown myself. Jenny and Julia, you remember little Julia? She has grown up such a big girl, and is getting on so well. They are both at work now, in the kitchen. Johnny gives us a deal of trouble. He cannot tell a word of truth. Father took off his strap the other day and beat him dreadful, but it ain't no use. If it wasn't for Jenny and Julia, I don't think we would ever make both ends meet. But they works all day at the dogs, and at the warehouse their dogs is said to be neater and more lifelike than any other. Their poor fingers is worn away cramming the paper into the moulds. But they never complains. No more shouldn't I if he were a bit gentler, and didn't take more than half of what he earns to the public house. I was glad you was away, Hester, for you always was of a nasty temper, and couldn't have borne it. I don't want to make my troubles seem worse than they be, but sometimes I think I will break up, special when I get to thinking what will become of us and all them children, money growing less and expenses increasing. I haven't told you, but I dare say you have noticed that another one is coming. It is the children that breaks us poor women down altogether. Ah, yes, yours be the hardest trouble, but you must put a brave face on it. We'll do the best we can. None of us can say no more. Mrs. Saunders wiped her eyes with the corner of her apron. Esther looked at her with her usual quiet, stubborn stare, and without further words, mother and daughter went into the kitchen, where the girls were at work. It was a long, low room, with one window looking out on a small backyard, at the back of which was a coal hole, the dustbin, and a small outhouse. There was a long table, and a bench ran along the wall. The fireplace was on the left-hand side, the dresser stood against the opposite wall, and amid the poor crockery, piled about in every available space, were the toy dogs, some no larger than your hand, others almost as large as a small poodle. Jenny and Julia had been working busily for some days 
and were now finishing the last few that remained of the order they had received from the shop they worked for. Three small children sat on the floor, tearing the brown paper, which they handed as it was wanted to Jenny and Julia. The big girls leaned over the table in front of the iron moulds, filling them with brown paper, pasting it down, tucking it between strong and dexterous fingers. Why, it is Esther, said Jenny, the elder girl. And locks, ain't she grand, quite the lady. Why, we hardly knowed ye. And having kissed their sister circumspectly, careful not to touch the clothes they admired with their pasty fingers, they stood lost in contemplation, thrilled with consciousness of the advantage of service. Esther took Harry, a fine little boy of four, up in her arms and asked him if he remembered her. No, I don't think I do. Will you put me down? But you do, Lizzie? She said, addressing a girl of seven, whose bright red hair shone like a lamp in the gathering twilight. Yes, you're my big sister. You've been away this year, or more in service. And you, Maggie, do you remember me too? Maggie at first seemed doubtful, but after a moment's reflection, she nodded her head vigorously. Come, Esther, see how Julia's getting on, said Mrs. Saunders. She makes her dogs nearly as fast as Jenny. She is still a bit careless in drawing the paper into the moulds. Well, just I was speaking of it. Here's a dog with one shoulder just half the size of the other. Oh, mother, I'm sure nobody'd never know the difference. Wouldn't know the difference. Just look at the animal. Is it natural? Such carelessness I never see. Esther, just look at Julia's dog, cried Jenny. He hasn't got no more than half a shoulder. It's lucky mother saw it. For if the manager had seen it, he'd have found something wrong with it. I don't know how many more, and doctors may be a shilling or more on the week's work. Julia began to cry. Jenny is always down on me. She's jealous just because mother said I worked as fast as she did. If her work was overhauled, there are all my dogs there on the right-hand side of the dresser. I always ask the rights for my dogs. And if you find one there with an uneven shoulder, I'll... Jenny is so fat that she likes everything like herself. That's why she stuffs so much paper into her dogs. It was little Ethel speaking from her corner, and her explanation of the excellence of Jenny's dogs, given with stolid childish gravity in the interval of tearing a large sheet of brown paper, made them laugh. But in the midst of the laughter, thought of her great trouble came upon Esther. Mrs. Saunders noticed this, and a look of pity came into her eyes, and to make an end of the unseemly gaiety, she took Julia's dog and told her that it must be put into the mould again. She cut the skin away and helped to force the stiff paper over the edge of the mould. Now, she said, it is a dog. Both shoulders is equal, and if it was a real dog, he could walk. Oh, bother, cried Jenny. I shan't be able to finish my last dozen this evening. I have no more buttons for the eyes, and the black pins that Julia is using off for her little one won't do for this size. Won't they give you any at the shop? I was counting on the money they would bring to finish the week with. No, we can't get no buttons in the shop. That's homework, they says. And even if they had them, they wouldn't let us put them in there. That's homework, they says to everything. They is that a disagreeable lot. But haven't you got sixpence, mother? And I'll run and get them. No, I've run short. But, said Esther, I'll give you sixpence to get your buttons with. Yes, that's it. Give us sixpence, and you shall have it back tomorrow, if you are here. How long are you here up for? If not, we'll send it. 
I'm not going back just yet. What? Have you lost your situation? No, no, said Mrs. Saunders. Esther ain't well. She has come up for her health. Take the sixpence and run along. May I go too, said Julia. I've been at work since eight, and I've only a few more dogs to do. Yes, you may go with your sister. Run along. Don't bother me any more. I've got to get your father's supper. When Jenny and Julia had left, Esther and Mrs. Saunders could talk freely. The other children were too young to understand. There is time when he is well enough, said Mrs. Saunders, and others when he is that awful. It is hard to know how to get him, but he is to be got if he only knew how. Sometimes tis most surprising how easy he do take things, and at others, well, as about that piece of steak that I was a-telling you of. Should you catch him in that humour, he's as like as not to take ye by the shoulder and put you out. But if he be in a good humour, he's as like as not to say, Well, my gal, make yourself at home. He can but turn me out. I'll leave you to speak to him, mother. I'll do my best, but I don't answer for nothing. A nice bit of suffer do make a difference in him, and as ill luck would have it, I have nothing but a rasher. Whereas if only I had a bit of steak, he'd brighten up the moment he clapped his eyes on it and become that cheerful. But mother, if you think it will make a difference, I can easily slip round to the butcher's and, yes, get half a pound, and when it's nicely cooked and inside him, it'll make all the difference. That will please him. But I don't like to see you spending your money, money that you'll want badly. It can't be helped, mother. I shan't be above a minute or two anyway, and I'll bring back a pint of porter with the steak. Coming back, she met Jenny and Julia, and when she told them her purchases, they remarked significantly that they were now quite sure of a pleasant evening. When he's done eating, he'll go out to smoke his pipe with some of his chaps, said Jenny, and we shall have the house to ourselves, and you can tell us about your situation. They keeps a butler and a footman, don't they? They must be grand folk. What was the footman like? Was he very handsome? I've heard that they all is. And you'll show us your dresses, won't you? said Julia. How many have you got? And how did you manage to save up enough money to buy such beauties, if they're all like that? This dress was given to me by Miss Mary. Was it? She must be a real good one. I should like to go to service. I'm tired of making dogs. We have to work that hard, and it nearly all goes to the public. Father drinks worse than ever. Mrs. Saunders approved of Esther's purchase. It was a beautiful bit of steak. The fire was raked up, and a few minutes after, the meat was roasting on the gridiron. The clock continued its course ticking amid the rough plates on the dresser. Jenny and Julia hastened with their work, pressing the paper with nervous fingers into the moulds, calling sharply to the little group for what size paper they required. Esther and Mrs. Saunders waited, full of apprehension, for the sound of a heavy tread in the passage. At last it came. Mrs. Saunders turned the meat, hoping that its savoury odour would greet his nostrils from afar, and he would come to them mollified and amiable. Hello, Jim. You're home a bit earlier today. I'm not quite ready with your supper. I don't know that I am. Hello, Esther. Up for the day. Smells damned nice. What are you cooking for me, missus? What is it? Bit of steak, Jim. It seems a beautiful piece. Hope it will eat tender. 
that it will. I was afraid you would have nothing more than a rasher, and that I am that hungry. Jim Saunders was a stout, dark man of forty. He had not shaved for some days. His face was black with beard. His moustache was cut into bristle. Around his short bull neck he wore a ragged comforter, and his blue jacket was shabby and dusty, and the trousers were worn at the heels. He threw his basket into a corner, and then himself on the rough bench nailed against the wall, and there, without speaking another word, he lay sniffing the odour of the meat, like an animal going to be fed. Suddenly a whiff from the beer jug came into his nostrils, and reaching out his rough hand, he looked into the jug to assure himself he was not mistaken. "'What's this?' he exclaimed. "'A pint of porter. You are doing me pretty well this evening, I reckon. What's up? Nothing, Jim. Nothing, dear. But just as Esther has come up, we thought we'd try and make you comfortable. It was Esther who fetched it. She has been doing pretty well and can afford it. Jim looked at Esther in a sort of vague and brutal astonishment, and feeling he must say something, and not knowing well what, he said, Well, here's to your good health. And he took a long pull at the jug. Where did you get this? In Durham Street, at the Angel. I thought as much. They don't sell stuff like this at the Rose and Crown. Well, much obliged to you. I shall enjoy my bit of steak now, and I see a tater in the cinders. How are you getting on, old woman? Is it nearly done? You know I don't like all the goodness burnt out of it. It isn't quite done yet, Jim. A few minutes more. Jim sniffed in eager anticipation, and then addressed himself to Esther. Well, they seem to do you pretty well down there. My word, what a toff you are. Quite a lady. There's nothing like service for a girl. I've always said so. Hey, Jenny, wouldn't you like to go into service? Like your sister? Looks better, don't it, than making toy dogs at three and sixpence the gross? I should just think it was. I wish I could. As soon as Maggie can take my place, I mean to try. It was the young lady of the house that gave her that nice dress, said Julia. My eye, she must have been a favourite. At that moment, Mrs. Saunders picked the steak from the gridiron, and putting it on a nice hot plate, she carried it in her apron to Jim, saying, Mind your hands, it's burning hot. Jim fed in hungry silence, the children watching, regretting that none of them ever had suppers like that. He didn't speak until he had put away the better part of the steak. Then, after taking a long pull at the jug of beer, he said, I haven't enjoyed a bit of food like that this many a day. I was that beat when I came in, and it does one good to put a piece of honest meat into one's stomach after a hard day's work. Then, prompted by a sudden thought, he complimented Esther on her looks, and then with increasing interest inquired what kind of people she was staying with. But Esther was in no humour for conversation, and answered his questions briefly, without entering into details. Her reserve only increases curiosity, which fired up at the first mention of the racehorses, I scarcely know much about them. I only used to see them passing through the yard as they went to exercise on the downs. There was always a lot of talk about them in the servants' hall, but I didn't notice it. They were a great trouble to Mrs. Barfield. I told you, mother, that she was one of ourselves, didn't I? A look of contempt passed over Jim's face, and he said, We've quite enough talk here about the brethren. Give them a rest. What about the horses? Did they win any races? 
You can't have missed hearing that. Yes, Silverbraid won the Stewards' Cup. Silverbraid was one of your horses. Yes, Mr. Barfield won thousands and thousands. Everyone in Shoreham won something, and a ball for the servants was given in the gardens. And you never thought of writing to me about it. I could have had thirty to one off Bill Short. One pound ten to a bob. And you never thought it worth while to send me the tip. I'm blowed. Girls aren't worth a damn. Thirty to one off Bill Short. He'd have laid it. I remember seeing the price quoted in all the papers. Thirty to one taken and offered. If you had told me all you knowed, I might have gone half a quid. Fifteen pun to half a quid. As much as I'd earned in three months slaving eight and ten hours a day. Paint pot on and about them blooming engines. Well, there's no use crying over what's done. Such a chance will never come again. But something else may. What are they going to do with the horse this autumn? Did you hear that? I think I heard he was entered for the Cambridgeshire. But if I remember rightly, Mr. Leopold, that's the butler, not his real name, but what we call him. Ah, yes, I know, after the baron. What do he say? I reckon he knows. I should like to have half an hour's talk with your Mr. Leopold. What do he say? For what he says, unless I am pretty well mistaken, is worth listening to. A man wouldn't be a-wasting his time in listening to him. What do he say? Mr. Leopold never says much. He's the only one the gaffer ever confides in. Tis said they are thick as thieves, so they say. Mr. Leopold was his confidential servant when the gaffer, that's the squire, was a bachelor. Jim chuckled. Yes, I think I know what kind of man your Mr. Leopold is like. But what did he say about the Cambridgeshire? He only laughed a little once, and said he didn't think the horse would do much good in the autumn races. No, not races, that isn't the word. Handicaps? Yes, that's it. But there's no relying on what Mr. Leopold says. He never says what he really means. But I heard William, that's the footman. What are you stopping for? What did you hear him say? That he intends to have something on next spring. Did he say any race? Did he say the city and sub? Yes, that was the race he mentioned. I thought that would be the length and breadth of it, Jim said as he took up his knife and fork. There was only a small portion of the beef steak left, and this he ate gluttonously. And finishing the last remaining beer, he leaned back in the happiness of repletion. He crammed tobacco into a dirty clay with a dirtier fingernail and said, I'd be uncommon glad to hear how he's getting on. When are you going back? Up for the day only. Esther did not answer, and Jim looked inquiringly as he reached across the table for the matches. The decisive moment had arrived, and Mrs. Saunders said, Esther ain't going back, least the ways. Not going back? You don't mean that girl ain't contented in her situation, that she is... Esther ain't going back no more, Mrs. Saunders answered incautiously. Look here, Jim. Out with it, old woman. No humbug. What is it all about? Ain't going back to a situation. And where she has been treated like that? Just look at the dust she has got on. The evening was darkening rapidly, and the firelight flickered over the back of the toy dogs piled up on the dresser. Jim had lit his pipe, and the acrid and warm odour of quickly burning tobacco overpowered the smell of grease and the burnt skin of the potato, a fragment of which remained on the plate. Only the sickly flavour of drying paste was distinguishable in the reek of the short black clay which the man held firmly between his fingers. Esther sat by the fire, her hands crossed over her knees, 
no signs of emotion on her sullen, plump face. Mrs. Saunders stood on the other side of Esther, between her and the younger children, now quarrelling among themselves, and her face was full of fear as she watched her husband anxiously. Now then, old woman, blurt it out, he said. What is it? Can it be the girl has lost her situation? Got her sack? Yes, I see that's about the cut of it. A beastly temper. So they couldn't put up with it in the country any more than I could myself. Well, it's her own lookout. If she can afford to chuck up a place like that, so much the better for her. Pity, though. She might have put me up to many a good thing. It ain't that, Jim. The girl is in trouble. What do you say? Esther in trouble? Well, that's the best bit I've heard this long while. I always told you the religious ones were just the same as the others. A bit more hypocritical, that's all. So she, that wouldn't have nothing to do with, such as was Mrs. Dunbar, has got herself into trouble. Well, I never. But this just what I always suspected. The goody-goody sort are the worst. So she has got herself in trouble. Well, she'll have to get herself out of it. Now, Jim, dear, you mustn't be hard on her. She could tell a very different story if she wished it. But you know what she is. There she sits like a block of marble and won't say as much a word in her own defence. But I don't want her to speak. I don't care. It is nothing to me. I only laugh because... Jim, dear, it is something to all of us. What we thought was that you might let her stop here till her time was come to go to the hospital. Oh, that's it, is it? That was the meaning of the half pound of steak and the pint of porter, was it? I thought there was something up. So she wants to stop here, do she? As if there wasn't enough already. Well, I'll be blowed if she do. A nice thing, too. A girl can't go away to service without coming back to a respectable home in trouble. In trouble, she calls it. No, I won't have it. There's enough here as it is, and another one coming, worse luck. We want no bastards here, and a nice example too for the other children. No, I won't have it. Jenny and Julia looked curiously at Esther, who sat quite still, her face showing no sign of emotion. Mrs. Saunders turned towards her, a pitying look on her face, saying clearly, You see, my poor girl, how matters stand. I can do nothing. The girl, although she did not raise her eyes, understood what was passing in her mother's mind, for there was a grave deliberativeness in the manner in which she rose from the chair. But just as the daughter had guessed what was passing in her mother's mind, so did the mother guess what was passing in the daughter's. Mrs. Saunders threw herself before Esther, saying, Oh no, Esther, wait a moment, he won't be hard on he. Then turning to her husband, You don't understand, Jim, it is only for a little time. No, I tell you. No, I won't have it. There be too many here as it is. Only for a little while, Jim. No, and those who ain't wanted had better go at once. That's my advice to them. This place is as full of us that we can hardly turn around as it is. No, I won't hear of it. But, Jim, Esther is quite willing to pay her way. She saved a good little sum of money and could afford to pay us ten shillings a week for the board and the parlour. A perplexed look came on Jim's face. Why didn't you tell me that afore? Of course I don't wish to be hard on the girl, as you have just heard me say. Ten shillings a week for her board and the parlour. That seems fair enough. 
and if it's any convenience to her to remain, I'm sure we'll be glad to have her. I'll say right glad too. We was always good friends, Esther, wasn't we? Though he wasn't one of my own. So saying, Jim held out his hand. Esther tried to pass by her mother. I don't want to stop where I'm not wanted. I want no one's charity. Let me go, mother. No, no, Esther. Haven't you heard what he says? You are my child, if you ain't his. And it would break my heart, that it would, to see you go away among strangers. Your place is among your own people, who look after you. Now then, Esther, why would there be ill-feeling? I didn't mean any harm. There's a lot of us here, and I have to think of the interests of my own. But for all that, I should be main sorry to see her take your money among strangers, where you wouldn't get no value for it. You'd better stop. I'm sorry for what I said. Ain't that enough for you? Jim, Jim, dear, don't say no more. Leave her to me. Esther, for my sake, stop with us. You are in trouble, and it is right for you to stop with me. Jim has said no more than the truth. With all the best will in the world, we couldn't afford to keep you for nothing. But since you can pay your way, it is your duty to stop. Think, Esther, dear, think. Go and shake hands with him and I'll go and make you up a bed on the sofa. There's no bloody need for her to shake my hand if she don't like, Jim replied, and he pulled doggedly at his pipe. Esther tried, but her fierce and heavy temper held her back. She couldn't go to her father for reconciliation, and the matter might have ended quite differently. But suddenly, without a word, Jim put on his hat and went out to join his chaps who were waiting for him about the public house close to the cab rank in the Vauxhall Bridge Road. The door was hardly closed behind him when the young children laughed and ran about joyously, and Jenny and Julia went over to Esther and begged her to stop. Of course she'll stop, said Mrs. Saunders. And now, Esther, come along and help me to make you up a bed in the parlour. End of chapter 13